Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Steve Greenbaum, who is a professor of physics at Hunter College in the City University of New York and a fellow of the American Physical Society. Professor Greenbaum's main research interest involves spectroscopic studies of disordered solids by magnetic resonance and synchrotron X-ray absorption, most of which has recently centered on materials for electrochemical energy storage and conversion. He has authored or co-authored over 260 peer-reviewed uh, publications and given over 16 invited talks at national or international conferences. Welcome, Steve. Thank you very much, Gil. Thanks for the kind introduction. Sure, yeah. So you are a well-known expert in the area of batteries. And um, conceptually, a battery is simple, uh, two electrodes and an electrolyte in between. Uh, but um, there are so many different materials we could use, right, for both the electrodes and the electrolyte, and they have advantages and disadvantages. So what's the, what's the state of the art? And obviously, it depends on the application, I would imagine, uh, from automobiles to uh, laptops to um, increasingly mass storage uh, with, uh, with solar and wind-powered um, modalities. So what's the state of the art in terms of battery, um, battery design and construction? Oh, okay. Well, batteries have been with us for a long time. And for many years, we just take for granted uh, for our portable devices. Uh, um, we could just go into Radio Shack or I guess uh, CVS and, and, and replace our batteries. These are, you know, the commonly used alkaline batteries. Um, but yeah. of course, uh, I think even now the general public is aware that um, uh, batteries are much more sophisticated and powerful now. In fact, also that there's a growing need uh, to make them better and safer. So uh, the main, st- I, I guess the most um, common and uh, well-known battery is a lithium ion battery, right? Uh, yeah. A lot of positive publicity. I mean, the, the 2019 Nobel Prize in Chemistry was awarded to, to three individuals uh, for the de- invention and development 
of the lithium ion battery. And that, that is really, uh, at this point, I think we're taking for granted that. That uh, was from the know, 60s, right? The discovery. Was uh, that's correct. That's correct. So, so, I mean, I, actually, I know two out of the three uh, individuals fairly well, St Stanley, Stanley Whittingham yeah. at, the, at the State University of New York, Binghamton, and John Goodenough at the University of Texas. Um, uh, uh, yeah, Stan did some very groundbreaking work when he was a scientist at, at Exxon uh, in the 60s. Um, I mean, he was really the first to demonstrate um, that you could have uh, basically a lithium intercalation reaction. I think he was using titanium oxide or titanium sulfide. Uh, yeah. Now, the battery didn't actually, you know, was not developed much further than that. But he was really the, the person who demonstrated that uh, definitively. And, of course, John Goodenough is not very well known for his development of um, um, uh, the positive electrode, the transition metal base like cobalt oxide, so forth, uh, and, and uh, other transition metal oxides. Um, and uh, uh, the, the other fellow, uh, Yoshina from Japan, uh, really put it all together in terms of, of having uh, the other electrode, which is basically graphite. And uh, you know, this is called a rocking chair configuration where the lithium ions actually go back and forth between these two insertion electrodes, one graphite, the other a, a transition metal oxide. Um, yeah. And uh, in fact, um, uh, this, this, um, uh, this is actually, uh, if, you, if you don't get any, anything else from this podcast, you'll, you'll know why, <laughs> you'll at least know why it's called the lithium ion battery, right? Because there's no, <laughs> there's no yeah. free metallic lithium in there. The original batteries, uh, you know, there, there are certainly lithium batteries based on lithium metal, but they're not rechargeable because it's very difficult to get the lithium to come back to its original flat configuration. And mm -hmm. normally what happens is you get uh, these uh, mossy and uh, dendritic deposits of lithium that eventually reach across the cell and, and give you a short circuit, then you have your fire and explosion and so forth. So, so when you charge, when you charge Steve, um, Essentially, there is a transport mechanism of the lithium ion from one electrode to another, and correspondingly, there is uh, there are electrons going uh, going through the circuit, and that's how we get the uh, that's how we are supplying the power to the battery. And then when we reverse that, uh, lithium ions are coming back, uh, and then we're getting the electrons back. That's how it is. That's correct. Uh, so the yeah, you uh, just just to. Um reiterate what, uh, what you said, um, the electrons move external uh, to the battery through the circuit uh, uh, between the electrodes on the outside of the battery. Uh, and inside the battery, the lithium ions need some kind of medium, and that's, that's the electrolyte, essentially, that the lithium ions move between the electrodes. Yeah. Um, and and the, uh, again, for lithium metal, uh, when, you, when, you plate, when, you when you charge the battery, uh, instead of forming a nice flat array of uh, lithium um, in, the, in the original's form, uh, you get these other other um, uh, undesirable forms of lithium that eventually can short circuit the battery. So that's why graphite is used as an intercalation host for lithium ions. Right? It's really a safety issue. The graphite itself, because it's there, it detracts from the overall energy density because it doesn't actually store energy in itself, but it's, it's really a, a, a vessel for the lithium and, and to keep it safe. Yeah. Uh, so, so uh, my, in my own, my own interest, uh, I mean, I'm, of course, I'm interested in all the aspects, but my major research activity has been on, on the, what I call the electrolyte bottleneck. Uh, the electrolytes we have now, which support the uh, transport of lithium ions between the electrodes inside the battery, 
uh, is an organic uh, liquid, basically, which um, has almost the same energy density as kerosene. <laughs> if you make it, if you have an, a thermal event like a short circuit, there you have your fuel. And when you see these battery fires, it's the electrolyte, uh, these these uh, liquid carbonate electrolytes that are actually uh, burning. So that's what that's what was happening to that Galaxy phones, Samsung. Um, that, they were that's correct. Uh, yeah. I, I think uh, I, I guess we, we learned certainly Samsung did. We learned a lot about um, um, uh, the, the various issues. Uh, the thing is that um, we're, uh, in my opinion, we're really approaching the limit of how much energy we can store in a, in a restricted volume uh, mm -hmm. using the this, this same chemistry. Now, when a company, now there's enormous competition, obviously, between companies uh, yeah. uh, to, to make, have a longer lasting battery and so forth. So sometimes <clears throat> I won't say that I won't say they can cut corners, but, but certainly um, when, you, when you're already close to the limit, uh, you know, any little tweak that you do might uh, cause a problem. And that, that was, uh, that's, that's what resulted in the recall of all those uh, Galaxy 7s. Yeah. So, so the, 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 one of the issues, as you say, is the electrolyte. Um, it, it's unsafe um, where if the temperature gets above certain, certain level or if there is some kind of a fault in the manufacturing or something like that. So the, the flammability of the electrolyte is something that um, that I guess a lot of a uh, lot of um, innovators were trying to avoid. So there is also electrolytes that uses um, soluble stuff in in water instead of the organic compounds. Aha! Yes, uh, actually, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I was actually privileged um, to work on some of that material. There's a there's a group, um, a, a pretty well known group at the University of Maryland. And uh, they're also, they also work with the Army Research Laboratory in Adelphi, Maryland. And I've, I've known these folks for a number of years. Yeah. Um, they, they pioneered uh, these ultra-concentrated aqueous, you know, uh, you know, aqueous solutions right. with uh, you know, maybe 21, 22 molar. <laughs> uh, I mean, the stuff looks like a syrup because there's just so <laughs> much salt in there. Yeah. Um, but but there, uh, there was uh, the innovation in that regard uh, was that uh, normally, when you have an aqueous electrolyte, you can't go above like uh, you know 1.3 volts because that's that's the potential at which you basically uh, uh, you know uh, you decompose the water, right? You mm -hmm. have electrolysis of water at about 1.3 volts or so, uh, and that and then if you limit the voltage, of course, you're going to limit the uh, the energy density uh, right. uh, severely. Uh, so, uh, much to the surprise, I think, of the group at Maryland a uh, number of years ago. Uh, they found that if you if you have really high concentration of salt, you can actually raise the so-called electrochemical window above about three volts. So you can actually make a, a close to a three volt battery because mm -hmm. the high salt concentration somehow inhibits the electrolysis of water. So there's, and there's been a lot of work on that. And we were privileged to to publish a couple of papers with this group as well. And um, so the aqueous um, electrolytes, are they in commercial products? Or I don't think, still yeah, I don't think they're anywhere close to being commercial. I mean, certainly, I, I mean, you know, if you want to talk about aqueous uh, batteries that are commercial, of course, your lead acid battery. <laughs> uses yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but if we're talking about lithium, um, uh, no, they're not. Uh, they're very promising at this at this stage. Um, they're probably more of a scientific curiosity than, they, than they're close to uh, commercial development. Uh, there are a number of issues involved. Uh, first, of course, you can't use them. 
with metallic lithium because you still have that water in there. Uh, and and uh, uh, there, there, are, there are other issues, even, even economic issues. For example, um, the salt that, they, that, they, that has been most studied uh, that, is, that forms the electrolyte when you put, put it in a solvent is something called LITFSI. Uh, yeah. And uh, at the concentrations that they're envisioning that a lot of the work has been done, it turns out that if you have to use that much salt in a battery, that that could be uh, economically somewhat, uh, maybe not prohibitive, but but maybe not that attractive. Right. And and then there is um, increasing um, attention to the solid state electrolyte, right? Uh, which has obviously, yes. from a practical perspective, a lot of advantages, uh, but still uh, a density, cyclability, all those things need to be improved. Is that the issue? A lot of a lot of attention. Well, I you know I was I was trained in solid state physics, so so I, I have an intrinsic uh, interest in conduction ionic conduction of the solid state, which is a really fascinating process. And these solid electrolytes have been known for many many years. Um, yeah. uh, and there's a lot and there's a lot of effort, a lot of a huge number of startup companies, plus a lot of the big car companies like Toyota, for example, um, uh, have uh, significant R and D programs using uh, these so-called ceramic or glassy electrolytes, uh, which are rigid solids, uh, but the ions move inside these rigid solids by mm -hmm. some kind of nanoscopic popping mechanism, uh, sub-nanoscopic. Uh, and it's a fascinating process, but uh, there are a lot of challenges uh, to make a, a practical battery because these materials are very brittle, right? So um, it turns out that, uh, of course, when you charge and discharge a battery continuously, you get uh, some, you know, modest or not so modest in some cases, volumetric changes uh, in the battery. It expands and contracts with charging and discharging. And if you've got a brittle electrolyte, then the interface between the electrolyte uh, and the electrodes can be compromised, right? So you, you, you lose contact after many cycles. That's one of many, uh, uh, well, one of several significant challenges to make the solid work. You've got to make it very thin. It's very difficult to make thin. The idea is that it's the energy storage, the energy density comes from uh, the reactions of the, in the electrodes, right? The yeah. electrolyte of the medium, uh, which transfers the ions, right? So the electrolyte itself is, does not have energy density associated with it. So you want to make it as thin as possible. And that's also a, a big challenge to do with these solid state materials. So mm -hmm. uh, what I just described um, was uh, the, the, the so-called ceramic or glassy uh, uh, solid electrolytes. Yeah. There's an equally impressive and, uh, I, I would say, massive uh, effort on polymer electrolytes. And this, uh, I, I, I must reveal my bias. <laughs> um, <laughs> most, of my, most of my research uh, probably has been in polymer electrolytes for the last, uh, you know, quarter, quarter of a century, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of advantages to polymers. So the, main, uh, the, the, two, one, the two main advantages I can cite right now are they're a little softer and they maintain a, they can maintain a, a good interface between the electrodes and electrolyte mm -hmm. uh, and therefore they can essentially breathe with the battery as it expands and contracts. Uh, they're also very easy to process in very large area uh, films, right? You, it's basically, uh, the various uh, processing tools of the plastics industry that can essentially be used for for the polymer electrolytes. You can make these large sheets and then incorporate them into into battery production devices. Uh, the the um, the short the uh, shortfall of the polymers is that the conduct the ionic conductivity the ions don't move as well in these polymers as they do in the other solids. 
And yeah. that's, that's been, that's been an a, a enormous um, <clears throat> source of frustration for many. I think that, uh, uh, well, let me just mention the main, the main actor in, in this field is something is a material called polyethylene oxide. Right. Yeah. And that's, um, that's been the star of uh, the, the, the I, I guess, the main actor in terms of uh, polymer electrolyte development. Many, many papers, thousands and thousands and thousands of papers d- dating back to uh, 1980, even a little bit before. Um, but they still haven't pr- saw, they still haven't solved the problem. I, you know, when I give talks at meetings, uh, one of my favorite quips is you know, polyethylene oxide. Is, is, we just call it PEO. Yeah. My, one of my favorite quips is PEO has been great for making PhDs. Right. So, so a lot of tons and tons of papers. Um, there is, a, to my knowledge, there's only one practical battery that's based on PEO, and that's the um, French company Bolor, uh, Blue Car, uh-huh. uh, where they, they actually use uh, a lithium metal and lithium iron phosphate electrodes and, and a, a polyethylene oxide electrolyte. But, but um, the ionic conductivity in PEO only becomes appreciable at higher temperatures. So this battery has to run at about 80 degrees uh, Celsius. So that, and that's a deal breaker for for, for many, many applications. Right. Yeah, I also read that there's something called quasi-solid state electrolytes. Uh, They're called gel polymer electrolytes. Ah. Is that that something that is, um, that's coming up or something that hasn't really gone anywhere? It's been, it's been around for a while. Uh, Okay, so, so, uh, uh, just just a quick quick review. Yeah. Uh, inside a battery, you have uh, a con- uh, commercial lithium ion battery. You've got this thing that separates the electrodes. Uh, you know, that keeps them from sh- touching each other, and that's uh, strangely enough called the separator. Right. So, <laughs> the separator is is a porous polymer in which is in, in within which is soaked soaked with a liquid electrolytes. It's kind of spongy material. It, yeah. it physically separates. Um, uh, the two electrodes, and also contains the ion conducting medium, which is the liquid electrolyte. Right, so a gel electrolyte is um, a little bit different than that. Gel electrolyte is basically you take a liquid electrolyte and you add these agents that that make it into kind of a more of a solid form. So mm-hmm. it, uh, th- there's been a lot of interest in that. To my knowledge, um, well, I think Panasonic uh, in what they call their polymer uh, ba- uh, lithium polymer battery. Uh, the electrolyte is kind of like that. It's a, it's it's a liquid electrolyte that's been jellified, right? It's been used to added sort of thickening agents, uh, and it's you know maybe marginally better than than the standard um, uh, liquid electrolyte that's soaked into this uh, porous separator. So, from a commercial practical perspective, um, the, we are still on lithium ion with organic electrolytes, right? That is that is what. That's is. correct. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that um, that people are are looking at alternative liquids. So, for one one uh, uh, promising area is uh, these so-called fluorinated carbonates. If you replace uh, some of the hydrogens by fluorine, uh, you you can improve the safety issues. Of course, that's a very expensive process, right? So yeah. uh, none of this is going to work uh, at a successful commercial level if the materials are, are, are too expensive. And that, that's one of the barriers right now. But, but a lot of people are, are working on these um, uh, fluorinated uh, polymers. Also, uh, uh, w- one thing that amuses me um, um, uh, frequently is uh, the, the um, 
basically the, uh, the efforts uh, that people will go to to just squeeze every last milliamp hour per gram <laughs> out of that battery. So, so for example, um, uh, the basic li liquid electrolyte, which is a mixture of these liquid carbonates with a lithium salt uh, dissolved in it, that hasn't changed very much uh, in the last almost quarter century or so, right? Yeah. But there have been a lot of tweaks. Um, people add these agents that, that form these protective layers on the electrodes. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and, you know, every so often you find one that's, you, you'll, you'll see a hundred papers published on this one particular additive that seems to improve things. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the, the most amusing thing to me is that uh, people are actually adding, sometimes are adding fire retardants, these uh, phosphate compounds, mm -hmm. right? So, uh, when you when you start adding fire retardants to the liquid electrolyte, I think you know I think you I think that's the wrong approach. <laughs> so so what is what is in the the typical electric automobile? Is it also uh, lithium ion? Yeah, that's uh, right. I mean uh, the the very early um, uh, generation of of cars, uh, electric cars, used nickel metal hydride. Uh, soon it was it was. Uh, realize that, you know, you can get much better energy density with lithium ion. So that's, you know, hybrid, uh, if you buy a hybrid vehicle today or an all electric vehicle or, or, um, or a combination, then, then you're going to, you're going to have lithium ion batteries. Right. Okay. So, so the, um, but, but there, the, again, um, there's the quite, there's, there's always the issue of range anxiety and the real, the thing that keeps the car company executives up at night is the safety issue. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so um, presumably that is also it has it is carrying inflammable organic electrolyte in there in the automobile, right? And That's so, correct. Yeah. Okay. Now I I don't I, I don't know what Tesla's doing. I mean I don't I don't know what I, I think I don't know if they they used to get their batteries from Panasonic. Now they make their own batteries. Um, mm -hmm. And of course their their specific battery chemistry, to my knowledge, is uh, highly proprietary and and, and secret. Um, okay. but, but it is, uh, but it is a, um, it's basically a lithium ion battery. I, and I believe that, uh, you know, I, you may, if, if, if somebody from Tesla listens to this and wants to refute me, that's fine. But I believe that, that they, that they do go to heroic, uh, efforts. You know, they, they have all these they, thousands of these cells packed into these tubes. Hmm. Um, they do go to the, they do go to heroic efforts to make them safe, right? They, you know, each cell has an individual sensor. Yeah. You know, temperature and they have they have these means of cutting out uh, if, if one if one battery goes into a term that's euphemistically called uh, uh, thermal runaway then mm -hmm. there's a way to isolate that particular cell and so forth but that makes the battery pack really expensive right so right. Uh, if you could figure out a way to make these batteries inherently safe where you didn't have to have all these uh, individual monitors and and so forth and safety issues then that would make a huge difference because then you could make uh, electric cars much more affordable than they are right now. Mm, that's interesting. So perhaps some uh, potential artificial intelligence techniques, you know, to look at patterns of discharge and things like that might be potentially feasible in the future. Oh, there, there is. Yeah. I, I mean, this is an area that I'm not, you know, well versed in for sure, but of course there's the engineering aspect uh, and, and uh, the charge discharge behavior and, uh, and the various diagnostics, and there's you know there's the um, artificial intelligence and, re and machine learning and so forth, uh, where where people have, can have uncovered uh, signs that a battery is going to go into thermal runaway well before it actually happens. So these things are are uh, very positive developments. But again, this is not an area that I'm I'm that 
I'm, yeah. I know me as an expert in. So, um, you know, we, we increasingly have this uh, renewable energy uh, massive production, right? Solar farms, wind farms. Uh, will lithium-ion technology be able to store uh, energy at that scale at any point? Well, that's, that's a very good question. Uh, there are several competing technologies uh, for storage. Um, and lithium-ion is among them, despite, despite its, its uh, expense. Um, but uh, for grid-type grid, uh, grid storage, um, uh, you don't actually uh, need the, the, some of the advantages. One of the main advantages of lithium-ion is that is you, you, you can store it in a compact space. Right? Yeah. And, and it's, it's not that it, you, know, you, you can save on, on mass and volume. And that's, that's really good for a cell phone or, for that matter, electric car. Um, but that's not really a, a requirement for grid storage. For stationary right. storage, uh, you have these batteries stored on the ground. You don't really need the advantages of, of, of lithium uh, so, uh, in terms of volume and, and mass. Uh, so uh, there are other technologies that might be better in terms of uh, affordability, like sodium, for example. You know, so, sodium chemistry is, yes. uh, uh, is, is being explored um, a lot for these large scale, larger scale applications. Uh, sodium is a lot cheaper, right? So, you know, sodium is a major <laughs> constituent of our oceans, for example. <laughs> um, right. And, and uh, you know, the, you, you, you wouldn't, I don't think you'd have a dream of making a sodium ion battery or sodium based battery for, for a car, but certainly for grid storage, uh, that's one of the, uh, that, that's, that's one um, uh, very attractive option. But uh, before we leave the topic of lithium for that, for grid storage, the fact is we have a huge amount of experience, uh, you know, based on all, all the uh, technology that, that rely, relies on, on lithium ion uh, batteries. So that, right. so lithium ions are, lithium ion batteries are also considered in the mix in the development of grid storage. Yeah, the, the good thing about the grid storage is that it doesn't really have to worry about movement, right? So, so I guess from a, right. from a cost perspective, you can go to materials and even from a safety perspective, since you have no movement of the device, um, you have less of a, less of an issue with, uh, you know, the safety considerations, I would imagine. Yeah, that's correct. If you, if you look at, uh, for example, if you look around the world, um, uh, for, at, you know, a lot of energy storage uh, technologies rely on pumped water, you know, yeah. pumped hydro, right? So, so, you know, you have to have the geography and you have to have the local geography for that and, and the infrastructure uh, to do that. Of course, batteries are much more compact. Yeah, um, the previous energy secretary, um, Professor Chu, uh, I think has been a big advocate of pump storage, and I think he has recently, uh, recently again had something something out saying, U.S. should really uh, explore pump storage as the as the mechanism for storing, you know, large amounts of energy, obviously. Um, but yeah, you need to have the right geography, and then you have you have to also figure in, like I would imagine transmission losses because it'll be highly concentrated right right that's correct if you uh, also if you if you want to have uh, uh, especially if you want to have microgrids right let's say in developing countries uh, then then uh, you've got to have uh, you know electric essentially battery electrochemical storage you know the, the pumped hydro I think is a uh, much greater impact on on the local environment right 
Yeah, I mean, this is a fascinating area, Steve. You know, it seems like it is a material science innovation uh, area, right? I mean, there appears to be a lot of different materials that have some of these properties, combinations of those. Um, so I wondered, you know, if there is some kind of a algorithm that that might be able to help uh, create that optimum battery. Um, what what what's your perspective on that? Well, again, this is an area that I'm not an expert in, but but yeah. there's been enormous advances in computational methods uh, where you essentially don't, you know, you, we have this database of material properties, even at the elemental level and and so forth, and and uh, you know, uh, there there are very powerful predictive tools for yeah. what might work, uh, right. and and uh, I, I think that uh, that certainly had a major impact on development of materials, and will continue. Uh, with even more powerful computation on uh, machine learning and so forth, uh, uh, I think the uh, that will continue to drive uh, further advances in material science. I myself am an experimentalist, right? So you know, I take my cue from uh, the battery industry in terms of uh, you know what materials are interesting to them and 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 how do they work. And um, so you know, we use uh, magnetic resonance, as you mentioned in the introduction, yeah, uh, to understand how. Uh, ions move at, at basically at the molecular level, um, right. but but just again to to uh, get back to your your point that you just raised, um, we don't do this in a vacuum, right? So we you know, we read the we read the computational modeling papers uh, and, and, and uh, uh, we we see how that might be relevant to the materials that we'd like to study. Right, right. And uh, I want to shift gears a little bit, Steve. You've been an educator for a long time, and I know that you know you you passionately believe in uh, innovation at the boundaries of of disciplines, uh, but also uh, inclusive um, inclusion uh, in education. Um, I wondered if you want to talk a little bit about that as well. Well, thank you, Gil, for bringing that up. That is that is actually a. Uh, um, an understatement to say that it's a passion of mine. Uh, I'd have to say that for all these years, um, the thing that gives me the greatest joy and, and sense of fulfillment is the success of, of our students, right? The people that I've had the uh, opportunity to mentor directly or, or just as members of my research group. Um, and, uh, you know, it's no, it's no exaggeration to say that science is, uh, ex physical science in particular, is extremely underrepresented among, uh, uh, let's say, black and uh, Hispanic uh, students. Yeah. And uh, I've been privileged to work with this population. We, City University is, is a public university, lar actually largest public urban system in the country. Mm -hmm. And we get a lot of first generation students. We have a lot of students from, from the inner city, a lot of, a lot of African-American and Hispanic students. Um, and just by virtue of being there, I've had the opportunity to work with some fantastic students uh, uh, and, um, you know, one of the things I like to say at, uh, in, 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 these for, in these forums when I get a chance to, to say them is that uh, I certainly have never had to, never needed to make a choice uh, between uh, the best science that I can do and uh, getting students from underrepresented backgrounds uh, to, to be involved in research. You know, they're as good as anybody, uh, the, the, you know, they're, they're as good as any student I've ever um, mentored. Uh, and uh, but the, the the really satisfying part is 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 um, essentially the leverage that they get from from a science good science education you know, the difference the difference in their lives that yeah. that exposure to science at the right time can make 
is is enormously satisfying. They you know they get into the best grad schools or, or postdocs or jobs and so forth, uh, and and I'm extremely uh, happy about that. And and this and you know in the, in the current climate, uh, you know uh, with with uh, what's been going on in, in the country and now I dare say around the world, you know the Black Lives Matter movement uh, and so forth. Yeah. You know you you might think it's fashionable to do this. <laughs> you know, to get to make, to have more opportunities for minorities. But, you know, this has been a way of life for me for, you know, for, for 30 years uh, and uh, continues to be. And I, I, I uh, again, as, as I said, um, even notwithstanding the, uh, you know, a couple of hundred publications and so forth and conference presentations and invited talks and stuff like that, the success of these students when they, when they, when they get that postdoc at Caltech or, whatever that is, uh, whatever, yeah. that, as an example, that really, that's, that's really what does it for me personally. Yeah, access makes a huge difference, right? Uh, so, you know, um, if you think about it from a societal perspective, um, you know, segregation based on wealth uh, used to be the case, but there is a massive segregation, I believe, based on information and and knowledge and and because these are uh, activities that that span time uh, it the outcomes depend very much on initial conditions and access and so these cannot be really very easily corrected way down the way down the uh, path i would imagine right um I, I, yeah. yes i think that's right I, um you know in some ways I would say that I've got it easy, right? You know, I get them at the college level, right? But I think the challenge, and now I'm not an expert at this at all, but, but you don't have to be an expert to know that if you don't get an, a kid interested in science by the time they're in seventh or eighth grade, it may be too late. So by the time they get into my uh, freshman or sophomore physics class, you know, they already have uh, some direction, you know, some interest in science and, and some presumably mathematical ability so they can navigate the science. Yeah. Um, but but uh, we we're losing an enormous population uh, because uh, if you don't motivate a kid to be interested in science by the time they're at least in middle school, uh, it, as I said, it, it, it may be too late. I, not that not that I haven't seen students like that who have been exposed later on uh, as as uh, young adults or teenagers, but it's much harder if you don't get them interested early. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the problem is uh, everything is getting more and more specialized. There is so much information. There is so much to learn uh, that, as you say, if you if you don't get people in that direction early, if those initial conditions are not there, it becomes increasingly more difficult. Uh, that's of course get into it. Yeah. right. That's true, and, and and a lot of a lot of these things are being highlighted in in our current climate. Uh, in the you know the reaction to the killing, the police killings, and so forth. Then the deeper look into into how let's say the black community has been treated. Only and of course that you have the enormous inequality in education. You know, and, and uh, you know how are you going to get a kid interested in science uh, in seventh grade if uh, the the schools are inferior? You know that that's that goes to the heart of of the of one of the challenges, at least that, if, um, at least in my part of the universe. Yeah. Uh, so, in conclusion, Steve, I want to return to the batteries for one more one more time. Of so, if you look forward five years, ten years, um, which area and which uh, development uh, axis, if you will, holds the the highest potential, and where do you think we will be in terms of storage, uh, say five years from now? 
Okay, I, actually, I, I think that's a great question. Uh, it, it's this. This is a very exciting time to be in batteries. There are a, a, quite a large number of startup companies. I'm working with one of them. I won't mention the name. Yeah. Um, but but uh, uh, there are a number of these uh, companies, uh, and not only are they financed to some extent by the government. For example, Depart the Department of Energy has a branch called ARPA-E, Advanced Research Projects Agency, which was modeled after the Defense Department's DARPA. Yeah. You know, very high risk and high reward type projects. So they're, they're funding some of these startups. Plus you have enormous amount of venture capital uh, that's, a, that's available. Uh, uh, and um, I think we're on the verge of a breakthrough. Uh, in, in it's, it, you know, it's very hard to say where the breakthrough will be, of course. Um, mm -hmm. As Yogi Berra once said in his inimitable way, predictions about the future. But, <laughs> but uh, I, I think uh, I've seen some developments that, that look very positive. I think five years from now, um, we will probably have uh, a working lithium metal battery, which is about twice the energy density of a lithium iron battery. It's going to be maybe a little couple of years after that where the car companies are actually going to take a chance on mm. on putting lithium metal into their cars. I think it's. Uh, the, the, all the uh, electric car battery development right now is still based on getting, improving, tweaking, and you know as much as you can uh, the the current design of lithium-ion battery, you know maybe safer electrolytes and so forth. So that's where most of the effort is. Um, I, as I said, I'm biased toward the polymer electrolyte solution. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know I think I think that we're, we're breakthroughs are imminent in that. Um, and uh, but not to say that my colleagues who are studying, uh, I've done some of this too. But a lot of my colleagues are studying the ceramic glassy materials. You, you never know. I mean, you could you could see a breakthrough in that area as well. Yeah, I mean, it's exciting that there are a lot of different avenues people are pursuing. And uh, and do you think we will get to every home being self-contained uh, in terms of both production and storage? Uh, so we have uh, a truly distributed network no i don't think i not in my life i don't think we're, we're going to see that in every single home i mean there are there are homes and communities that do that now actually yeah. my, my my son lives in boston um uh, and uh, uh he just put solar on his house and he you know he, he's actually making money <laughs> uh, <laughs> massachusetts massachusetts actually has a very good solar program in terms of the rebates and so forth um but I, I don't know that I'll see that in, is widespread um, in, you know, at least the next 10, 15 years. Okay. Okay. Hopefully, uh, again, this is a material sciences innovation. So uh, once a breakthrough happens, um, you know, it can spread, spread very quickly. So let's hope that, uh, that, that we get there. Um, so this has been great, Steve. Uh, I really appreciate the time that you spend with me and uh, good luck with everything that you do. It's my pleasure, and uh, thanks again for inviting me to participate in this, in this forum. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye. Bye.